In recent years, the cocaine gold rush by Colombian cartels in the 70s and 80s has become gangster mythology. We've been inundated by shows like Narcos, Cocaine Cowboys, American Made, and others that have attempted to tell the stories of Paulo Escobar, Giselle de Blanco, Barry Seal, Carlos Later, and the Medellin Cartel. Pilot Jack Carlton Reed was a world record holding drag racer before making the decision to begin smuggling cocaine in the 70s. After being introduced to Carlos Later, he would move to Norman's Key and for almost four years assisted him on the infamous Bahamian island that the government claims moved tons of cocaine into the United States. Jack Reed would eventually be the co-defendant to Later in the longest running drug trial in American history, convicted and given two life sentences. He would refuse all interview requests, book and film offers, until a fellow pilot and journalist named May K. Beeler convinced him to tell his story. The two would form an indelible bond, leading to Reed writing his memoirs for Beeler's book, Buccaneer, and May K., questioning how a nonviolent offender could be given multiple life sentences. In criminal-minded media's new podcast, Glamour Profession, we take a look at Jack Reed's adventures and give listeners the real story of Norman's Key. We also take a deep dive into the drug trial of Reed and his close friend, Carlos Later. Finally, May K. Beeler, our co-pilot in the telling of this epic story, tells listeners about her two-year battle with the government to see Jack Reed released from prison every Friday, starting today, wherever you listen to podcasts. As a fan of the band Steely Dan, I've always been fascinated by their esoteric lyrics, the seeming entropy of references that never seem to really add up to a linear story. And yet, for some reason, when woven together, they create a fantastical pastiche. Their song Glamour Profession, which we just opened the show with, and the title of this podcast, was one of those songs. But on this occasion, I decided to Google around and see if there was an explanation to these lyrics. One of the stanzas goes, All aboard the Carib Cannibal, off to Barbados just for the ride. Jack with his radar stalking the dread moray eel at the wheel with his Eurasian bride. I mean, what the hell does that mean? Well, I decided to try and find out. The entire song speaks about cocaine, Hollywood, and even a reference to Doc Ellis, the famous Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher, who in 1979, while on LSD, pitched a no-hitter. But upon further research, I was able to discover that the Jack in the song referred to an obscurely known yet major drug smuggler, pilot Jack Carlton Reed. If you ask the general public, and let's be real, TV and film audiences, to name the biggest drug traffickers in the world, five will get you ten, that you will hear the same three names, Pablo Escobar, El Chapo, and Carlos Later. Now truth be told, as monumental as they were for supplying cocaine into the U.S., they relied on smugglers to help their product reach our shores. These smugglers came in many forms, from boat and ship captains, plane pilots, drivers and divers, and even submarine captains. 
They were and surely still are a rarefied group of mavericks. They genuinely feel that drug laws are unfair and that people have the right to live and let live. It's not an act, it's an ethos. Most will tell you that it wasn't the money that got them into the game. It was the thrill, the thrill of sticking it to the man and liberating society from draconian drug laws. The money kept them in, but it was the law that took them out. We've seen these characters portrayed in film and TV. Blow with Johnny Depp as George Young, moving pot and giant airships. American Maid starring Tom Cruise is probably the most famous of air smugglers, Barry Seal, who actually was in business not only with Escobar, but the CIA. And he wouldn't be the only one at the center of the Iran-Contra affair. Most likely, nobody would have ever heard about Jack Carlton Reed if it wasn't for a young and intrepid journalist, May Kay Beeler, a pilot herself who stumbled into Jack's story while researching one of her own on Norman's Key, the Bahamian island that Carlos later owned and used as his base of operations and midway point for trafficking cocaine between Colombia and the US. You see, the shipments and planes were so big and heavy that they needed to refuel before making it to the US. That was Norman's Key, a fueling station, a hedonistic hideaway for later, and his clan, and a fortress against attack. Really, what more could you ask for on an island? In fact, remember the doomed Fire Festival in recent years, where promoter snake charmer Billy McFarland and Ja Rule were staging a music festival? That was Norman's Key. Norman's Key is one of the most beautiful islands you will ever find on the planet Earth. It is gorgeous. It's in the Exuma chain. So to give you an idea, that's the Bahamas. It's about 210 miles southeast of the Florida coast and about 44 nautical miles southeast of Nassau. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. It's really considered more of a private island because there are a few private residences there, but there are also some villas that you can rent called McDuff's. So beautiful. There's a marina there. And so they are developing it more. Um, you may have heard about Norman's Key briefly as Pablo Escobar's Island. It was never Pablo Escobar's Island. Uh, it was run for a while by Carlos Later, who is an associate of Pablo Escobar. And yes, it was a transshipment center for drugs from Colombia via the United States. So yes, it does have a very notorious history, this beautiful island. Of course, all that went away decades ago. Uh, Carlos was incarcerated, as was Jack Reed. We'll talk about Jack in a little bit. So the Fry Festival was advertised as this big party for rich kids and celebrities on Pablo Escobar's island, Norman's Key. Carlos and Pablo were associated. And that was a huge, a huge problem for Carlos because he was associated with Pablo's horrible violence, bloody, horrible violence and guilt by association. So Carlos later was a drug, a drug lord. Of course, he was the first drug lord extradited to the United States. He was affiliated with the Medellin cartel. He was affiliated with Pablo. Mayke's fascinating journey resulted in her penning a book, The Buccaneer, a story about the life and times of Jack Reed. She would end up fighting to get Jack out of prison and become a confidant and friend to the likes of Carlos Lader, George Young, and the entire cast of characters that surrounded them at the time. It was pure kismet for her, 
as it was pure kismet for me that through a Steely Dan song I would discover May Kay and her story. Our glamour profession will tell May Kay's story and how she came to become so ensconced in such a dangerous and criminal underworld. Here is May Kay Beeler. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. My dad was a criminal defense attorney, not a rich guy, not a bad guy. This was back in the day when lawyers were good people. I know there's still some good lawyers out there, but they get a a bad rap. My mother was a writer, so I think I got my writing ability from my mother. My brother grew up to be an attorney. When I was a child, I wanted to be an astronaut and an actress. I grew up to be a record-breaking pilot and an award-winning TV personality and author. So not bad, not bad. I've always had a great sense of adventure. I'm a free spirit. I love life, I'm very positive. Doesn't mean I haven't had hard times. We all have had hard times. But I just try to see the light and the best in everything. And I consider myself a light worker. So a light worker is somebody who tries to brighten the world and help others when able. So I got into television, oh my goodness, back in the 80s. So when all this stuff was going on on Norman's Key with Jack Reed and Carlos Slater, I was in television. I was a TV personality on a show called PM Magazine, nationally syndicated show, aired at 7.30 on weeknights. It was a big deal. I traveled the world as a co-host for the show, was a story producer, and I learned to fly for that TV assignment. I was also an ABC TV reporter, producer, a weather girl, um, you name it, I've done it in television. And television is a big part of my life. And that led me to flying. So I learned to fly for a television assignment many years ago. And since then, I became a professional pilot and a world record-breaking pilot. So I'm a storyteller, and I love to tell stories about Um, Flying, of course, aviation. I flew with General Chuck Yeager and the Voyager crew. I've had just an amazing life and experience. I have interviewed astronauts, celebrities like Oprah and Mel Gibson. It's just been an amazing ride, and it continues to this day. And let me tell you, the most important production of my life, the most important production is my son. So I, I flew with my son when I was pregnant with him. I trained for world records when I was pregnant with him, and it only it only makes sense that after he was born, he'd be flying from day one, you know, from the time I was pregnant with him until, you know, decades later, and he is a professional air show pilot, so he is an aerospace engineer, that's his real job, um, but when he has time, he, he performs his aerobatics and air shows, the biggest air shows around the country, so I'm really, really proud of him. He, and he went to Norman's Key with me many, many years ago. That's another story. And, and he produced a documentary called Return to Norman's Key. So, you know, as, as two pilots, we just love going to Norman's Key. It is so beautiful. So you, like me, are probably wondering how an all-American girl already riding a string of professional and personal accomplishments would get mixed up with some of the more infamous names in the drug game. We will get to that. First, however, we need to give the listeners who may not have watched Blow or Narcos or American Made or any other dramatized version of the cocaine gold rush a quick lesson on the era and the players of this story. In the early 70s, heroin and pot were the main targets of the war on drugs launched by the Nixon administration. Cocaine was just an afterthought. There was a belief that coke was just a party drug for the wealthy 
and there were questions whether it was even addictive. You don't believe me? Here's a CBS News special report on cocaine from the mid-70s. Although cocaine enters through a massive criminal network, there is virtually no evidence that cocaine users commit crimes to get it, probably because cocaine, unlike heroin, is not physically addictive. The number of people snorting cocaine is rising steadily despite the steep price. About $100 for a gram, enough for several people to get high at one party. A congressional committee reports that students as young as 13 are switching from marijuana to cocaine. It is also increasingly popular with adults, especially among the sheep. Cocaine paraphernalia is selling well right on Madison Avenue. Who is buying this? Everyone. From the secretary to the executive on Madison Avenue. Lawyers, businessmen, old and young. We have customers in the, in the entertainment business, but uh, like I said, most of them are executives. Americans are now using as much cocaine as they did when it was legal 70 years ago. Sigmund Freud was the first celebrated cocaine advocate. After he said cocaine permitted intense physical or mental work without fatigue, the drug was used in all sorts of patent medicines. Well, we all know how that worked out. Cocaine would become the drug of the next generation with the main supply coming from Colombia, leading to the rise of narco-terrorist Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Initially, cocaine was being smuggled into the U.S. in smaller quantities in a variety of ways. It happens frequently, and it happened again last night. A cocaine arrest, this one at Miami International Airport. A Canadian accused of trying to smuggle three pounds of cocaine into this country in three pairs of platform shoes. Its estimated value on the streets, $700,000. Authorities say there's an avalanche of cocaine crossing our borders. Just one month before the tall ship Gloria from Columbia, South America, graced New York Harbor during the Opsail Bicentennial celebration, she was stopped and 13 pounds of cocaine were found on board. Although that stash was worth about $3 million, it amounted to just a trickle of the total cocaine smuggled into the U.S. by one estimate, a ton a week. Most cocaine comes from South America, frequently hidden in ingenious ways. For example, tucked inside chocolate bars or diluted in bottles of sherry. Seizures have risen steadily. So outside of coffee beans, Colombia's greatest export was cocaine. And there had to be a better way to smuggle it into the country. I mean, smuggling it in someone's platform shoes wasn't going to cut it. It was really by chance that drug smuggling history would be changed forever. In the early 70s, George Young, a pot smuggler who had been caught transporting large amounts of marijuana from Mexico to California using small planes, ended up cellmates with a Colombian national who was in prison for auto theft. The two men would change drug smuggling forever with a plan hatched in that prison cell. Here's the late George Young. I was sentenced to Danbury Federal Correctional Institute and that was how I met the infamous Carlos Slater. Pulse was there for stealing cars and shipping them illegally to Columbia. I said, well, basically you're a car thief. And he said, what about you? And I said, I flew plane loads of pot out of Mexico. He said, do you know anything about cocaine? I didn't. He said, you can buy it for three to $4,000 a kilo in Colombia." And I said, well, how much is it all for in the United States? And he said, 60000 a kilo. 
And I said, you know what, Carlos? I think you and I got to go into business together. In 1975, once George Young was released from prison, he contacted his old cellmate, Carlos Later. Their smuggling business would soon be born. But first, however, George and Carlos took a trip to Colombia to meet with a prospective business partner. The next thing I knew, we were on our way down to Colombia to meet a guy named Pablo Escobar. A lot of people asked me, was I an R or whatever? I mean, he could have been a vacuum cleaner salesman. I didn't know who the hell he was. We talked, and he said, I have one rule. You betray me, and I'll have to kill you. And I said, well, you'll never get to kill me because I'll never betray you. I mean, it's a simple rule, right? You know, people walking around the ranch, all the machine guns and this and that. That wasn't my trip. I, I just wanted to get in and get the hell out of there. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is really how the cocaine gold rush began. By the late 70s, Carlos Later would cut George Young out of the business, become one of the heads of the Medellin cartel, and buy Norman's K for a tidy $2 million, which he turned into a hedonistic playground and the largest cocaine transshipment hub in the world. He would also meet and befriend Jack Carlton Reed, who would become his dear friend and business associate, before the two men ended up co-defendants in the longest-running drug trial in U.S. history. But now we are getting ahead of ourselves. Much more on that later. We need to get back to our guide on this journey. So how did May Kay Beeler, our all-American TV host and pilot, end up going down the rabbit hole of Carlos Later, George Young, Jack Reed, and Norman's Key? Would you believe this all happened because she went to check out a remote-controlled airfield to see if her son would like it? Talk about fate or kismet or any other name for this was meant to be. Life is an amazing adventure, as we all know. Some of us have a little more colorful adventures than others. So over the years, in addition to being a television reporter and personality and a mom, I gained all of my uh, FAA flight certificates and ratings and all the way up to airline transport pilot and flight instructor. So I really love to fly. And one day when I was flight instructing, one of my students were up in the air. One of my students says, hey, Mayke, let's fly over to this field. I want to show it to you. Your son might be interested. It's a remote controlled airplane flying field. And so I go, oh, okay, whatever. So Robert was the pilot's name. We flew over and he said, see, that's the field I want you to come and bring your son. I go, yeah, whatever, okay. <laughs> you know, I had no idea it would change my life and change my son's life. Uh, but this was a pivotal point. So that weekend I got with Robert and he said, bring your son. I brought my son out there and oh my goodness, my son fell in love with it, took to the sport of, you know, remote controlled airplanes, ended up, you know, traveling the world and representing the United States in competitions and, you know, much work though. I mean, he was out there practicing all the time for years, just like his aerobatics today in full scale airplanes, a lot of practice, a lot of discipline, but I would go out there with him every weekend. He was too young to drive. So I would drive him out there. And so I'd sit there all day, all weekend talking to the guys and one of the guys I met, an elderly gentleman, told me, and they knew me from television, most of these folks, he, just, he says, Make, make, I have to tell you, you know, I used to fly too. And I go, oh, really? 
um, you know, he said he was a commercial pilot. And I said, well, why did you stop flying? By now he's in his 70s. And he said he stopped flying because they were flying in the Bahamas, he and his wife and another couple. They were doing this uh, Bahamas treasure hunt. So something the tourism department in the Bahamas does to recruit aviators to come fly their planes, you know, all through the islands in the Bahamas. It's kind of a fun thing and they get to vacation and, you know, the tourism department makes money off of it. But it's a really cool thing. And uh, Dick is the name of the uh, gentleman that I met, Dick Faisu. And he said, yeah, I said, he and his wife, Jean, and another couple, Dempsey and Vi, were flying in his Cherokee 6, little, you know, general aviation airplane, six-seater, and they had engine trouble uh, over an island, and they had a glide, the engine quit, and they had a glide to an island that just happened to have a runway, and at the last minute, it appeared the runway was blocked, and they crash-landed on the end of the runway. Uh, broken backs, broken jaws, the airplane's pretty much destroyed. And before they know it, an airplane comes to pick them up and takes them to a hospital in Nassau. And an official from the United States government, I, I think from our embassy, came and said, don't ask what happened. Don't ask anything about that island. We're going to get you home. But don't say anything or don't mention it. And they thought, well, that's really odd. Turns out it was Norman's Key. And it was in 1982. This chance conversation at the remote-controlled airfield would change the course of Mayke's life, although she had no idea at the time. It would start with a quest to help Dick and Jean find the wreckage of their beloved Piper 6 airplane on Norman's Key and lead straight to Carlos George and Jack Carlton Reed. Next time on Glamour Profession. <laughs> 